Ladies and gentlemen, welcome. I'm Josh Drive-Hayes, and this is episode zero, the pilot of an experimental audio drama, written and narrated by myself, following the story of Old School RuneScape. So relax and enjoy. The room was large and warm, jagged grey stone walls and one grand section of wood and glass, giving way to a gorgeous view onto the island beyond. I glanced around trying to remember exactly why I was here, or where here exactly was, when the commanding voice barked at me again. Name? Um, Strife, I muttered. It was an instinctual reaction, not a thought. Strife. It seemed to fit. I guess that was my name. The commanding man wrote it down on a small, yellowing notepad. His clothes were regal and far more expensive than mine. A tailored red and white tunic and red beret, the front of his tabard embroidered with the four-pointed star of Saradomin. A name tag simply read, Guide. While he wrote more details on the pad, I took in some more of the room. Potted plants, bookshelves overflowing with dusty tomes, a grandfather clock ticking away in the corner. There was a dining area over the other side with a large, expensive silk tablecloth draped over it. Golden candle holders holding pristine, unlit candles. How much do you know about this place? The guide clearly had very little time for me. Um... Not much, I replied. He let out a large sigh and quickly jotted down a few more notes before ripping the paper from the pad and thrusting it into my hand. Go through the door down the path and talk to the instructor. Be careful, she's... well, you'll find out. I looked at the piece of paper in my hand. It was full of detailed notes about me, my name, age, height. I opened my mouth to ask a question. I had so many. Who? Why? Where? Before I could say anything, the guide barked again. Name? He wasn't talking to me anymore. Someone else was in the room. Someone seemingly as confused and as unsure as I was. The guide had lost all interest in me. So I pocketed the paper, opened the weak wooden door behind me, and stepped outside into the mild afternoon breeze. Outside, a well-worn dirt path snaked down a gentle slope in front of me, then twisted sharply to the right. The grass was overgrown and spilled onto the path. Large blue flowers poked through in patches, and several imposing oak trees towered overhead, casting large pools of shade onto the ground below. I walked down the path and headed toward a clearing in the distance, a small patch of open ground ringed with trees, and over the far side, a stagnant pool of fetid water sat still and silent. As I walked closer, a faint hint of smoke drifted in on the breeze, and I could make out the dying embers of a simple campfire. Pacing around the clearing was a thin, sinewy woman. She wore a red cape and hood that had both long since lost their vibrant colour, and her hands were stained with ash and pond scum. As I cautiously approached, she threw something through the air straight toward me. I raised my hands and covered my head, then felt whatever it was hit me with a damp, rough slap. It was a fishing net, old and damaged, but still usable. I untangled it from my hands and clothes and held it out in front of me. The smell of rotten rope and dead fish so intense I just knew it was seeping into my fingers. What do I do with this? I shouted over to the woman. She pointed a blackened finger toward the vile pool of water and under that faded red hood I just knew she was smiling. Bundling the net up I made my way across the clearing, dried branches and twigs snapping as I walked and eventually 
I stood on the edge of the pool of water. If any fish were unlucky enough to live in this filth, there's no way I'd eat them. I turned and looked over my shoulder. The woman was still staring at me, still pointing. From the clearing, I could see up to the house on the hill where I started, and through the windows, I was sure I could see the guide staring down at me, waiting expectantly. I didn't know how to fish, but looking down at the water's surface, under the thick layer of leaves and scum, I could see movement, a mass of something, swimming. I lowered the net into the water, making very sure to keep my hands as far from it as possible. I gave it a shake, then raised it back out, the layer of dead material on the surface of the water clinging to the net as I raised it up. I gagged at the disgusting smell of fetid water and threw the net away from me, back into the clearing. The net landed on the dry ground with a wet thud, and I could see several smaller creatures writhing around within the mass of net and filth. Peering closer, they looked like shrimps. The woman threw another object at me, and fearing this was as disgusting as the net, I quickly stepped to the side and let it clatter to the floor. It was a white box, and as it landed hard on the ground, a small flint and striking stone fell out. Ah, it was a simple tinder box. Clearly she'd been the one starting all these small fires. I walked over to pick the tinder box up, and just before my hand reached it, the dull blade of a bronze axe flew inches from my face and embedded itself in the dirt behind me. If I'd been a step further forward, it would have cut deep into my cheek. I looked up and saw the woman, arm extended, smiling an odd, unnerving smile. I knew her aim was better than that. She could have hit me if she wanted to. She didn't need to explain the rest of the task. It was obvious from the floor around me. Piles of freshly chopped wood, splinters of amateur attempts at felling even the simplest of trees, bark and leaves everywhere, and then small mounds of still warm ash, recently burned out fires. I grasped the axe handle, it was warped and uncomfortable, and began swinging at a young tree just a few steps away. It didn't take long, and it wasn't pretty, but eventually I had a small bundle of sticks, and placing them into a basic pile on the floor, I kneeled down and began striking the stone and flint, showering the pile with sparks. It took a while, but eventually the smallest, driest of the sticks caught flame, then another, and then finally the pile, and a small but stable flame danced on the ground. I placed the axe and tinderbox back into my pack and admired the small fire I'd made. It wasn't much, but it was mine. The woman had made her way over to me and was sitting down on the ground a few paces away. I looked over at her and she nodded her head, first toward the fishing net and then toward the fire. I stood up, stretched, and picked the fishing net up from the ground, picking through the tangled, frayed rope ends and taking out what few small fish I'd managed to catch. Shrimp, several small ones, but definitely alive and enough to eat. Not that I'd want to, after seeing where they'd been living. The woman grunted to catch my attention and then licked her lips while nodding toward the fire. I knew what she wanted me to do, but I wasn't exactly keen. Grabbing a thin but sturdy stick from the clearing floor, I skewered the shrimp and began roasting them over the small flame. As I turned the stick, they began to fizzle and crackle, and the woman began loudly smacking her lips and clawing her fingers into the dirt at her sides. It was a strange sight, not frightening but feral, and unfortunately so distracting that I didn't notice the shrimp on the stick had started to burn and blacken. I took them away from the heat and handed the stick of burnt food to the woman. She eagerly jumped up, bounded toward me and snatched it, then began ripping the charred food off the stick and eating. 
I realised the black on her hands and mouth wasn't ash, just burnt food. And while she was distracted eating, I quickly hurried down a path to the side of the disgusting pond. With the odd woman behind me and the clearing quickly fading from view, I kept walking and eventually stumbled onto another dirt path. It twisted down a hill and was flanked on each side by a crudely made wooden fence. I followed it further and eventually saw it led to a small grey building at the bottom of the hill. As I got closer to the building, the smell of smoke and stagnant water was replaced by a beautiful, delicate aroma of freshly baked bread. I continued down the path and followed the scent into a small grey building, built from the same stone as the place I started, but much smaller, more homely. A heavy wooden dining table flanked by aged chairs, a barrel of freshly caught fish next to a small, well-stocked larder, the sink filled with soapy water and stacked with freshly scrubbed pots and pans. The room was warm and comfortable, a welcome change from the clearing. Pacing around was a large gentleman, wearing a pristine white cook's apron and carrying a sharp meat cleaver in his right hand. Hungry? he asked with a smile. Starving, I replied, as long as it's not shrimp. He let loose a hearty chuckle and beckoned me over to a small wooden table next to a large iron range. The heat from this thing was immense, and even though I was standing a few paces away, I still felt the hair on my arm start to crisp up. Mix that with that, the cook ordered. His voice was confident, yet kind. He was pointing to a cracked earthen pot filled with finely ground flour and a small wooden bucket filled with clean cold water. Where? I asked. I couldn't see any empty pots or pans to mix in. Here, he replied, slapping the table, sending a small plume of flour into the air where he hit. I emptied the pot of flour onto the table, then scooped out handfuls of water and mixed, the dry flour slowly becoming a sticky mess. Then finally, after a few more moments of beating and kneading the mixture on the old table, a firm bread dough. Now, put that in there. The cook was motioning to the range. While I was working the dough, he'd opened one of the heavy iron doors, and now I felt the heat sweep over me. The whole room seemed to swell with it, the dry heat seeping into the bricks, each breath filling my lungs with hot, dry air. The range was far too hot to approach, so I took a wooden paddle that was leaning against the table edge, placed the dough on the large flat end, and guided it into the range. Then, with a swift and smooth pullback, dropped the dough inside. Not bad at all, the cook proudly said. I smiled. Simple tasks, yet somehow I felt accomplished. So do I get my bread back? The cook smiled. It'll take some time to bake, but here, have this bit. He threw a perfectly baked roll at me. It arced high in the air and landed in my outstretched hand. Now, on your way. He nodded his head toward the door at the back of the room and smiled. I took a large bite of the bread roll. It was perfectly baked, soft and still slightly warm. Putting the rest away in my pack for later, I left the kitchen. The weather outside was starting to turn colder, the sun previously high in the sky now drooping toward the horizon. Just outside the kitchen, I was greeted with a beautiful view of the ocean and the sound of waves lapping at the water's edge. Small chunks of land had broken off, defiantly standing several metres away from the mainland. If I were younger, it'd be exactly the type of gaps I'd love to run at and jump over, or try and build a small wooden bridge for, but for now, I just walked along, admiring the endless expanse of the ancient ocean. The path curved more, but always remained near the cliff's edge, and finally curved to the right. Round the corner, a beautiful house painted a brilliant white glided into view, 
Windows sparkling clean and well cared for wooden timbers supported the building. The grass here was well cared for and trees perfectly trimmed. The door was open and I walked inside. Inside the house was somewhat bare, but what few furnishings there were stood out. The floor was a checkerboard red and white tiled pattern and round the edge of the room stood a strange selection of ornaments, a suit of armour, a statue of a bird with its wings spread, a roaring fireplace. On the wall were three mounted and displayed heads, a dragon, a bull and a unicorn. By the fire stood an average sized man with a shaved head, wearing a top the same brilliant white as the house with green shoulder pads. He smiled at me. I have a feeling you won't need my advice. With that, he walked to the corner, slid the lock back on a hatch on the floor, lifted it open and returned to a seat by the fire. Once sat, he picked up a book from the side table next to him and started reading quietly to himself. Now I'm not usually in the habit of climbing down secret trapdoors opened for me by mysterious men, but I knew the path outside led either to the sea or a sweltering hot kitchen. So I walked over to the hatch, sat down on the floor and made my way down the ladder. The ladder was longer than I'd expected and the eccentric room above gave way to a large, expansive cave. Neither hot nor cold, the cavern walls were lit by strong flickering torches, hammered into the wall every few steps. Stalagmites rising from the ancient floor and dangerous looking stalactites hanging ominously from the ceiling. The light from the torches casting long shadows, each of them lashing into gaps and cracks in the cavern walls. I slowly made my way through, holding my hands out to the side and tracking my fingers over the wall as I went. I could only see for certain a few steps in front of me and the cold stone floor was in patches slick with water dripping from above. The tunnel eventually took a sharp left turn and veered downwards. I knew I'd likely fall if I tried to walk, so I sat on the stone floor and inched myself down, staying by the wall and grabbing onto whatever small handholds I could find to stop myself slipping. Once at the bottom, I stood up, dusted myself off and looked around. The cave opened into a large room, almost as hot as the kitchen, and as my eyes adjusted to the dark, I saw rocks and minerals jutting out of the ground and then the faint sound of metal clashing on stone. Walking deeper into the room, it became more obvious. This was a mine, and as I gazed around in wonder at the sheer size of the place, I suddenly felt a firm hand land heavily on my shoulder. So you didn't fancy being a cook, eh? The man was taller than me by at least a foot, strong broad shoulders and muscular arms stacked against a giant chest. His voice was oddly soft for his sheer size. He was wearing a purple pair of shorts and a purple bandana wrapped around his head. No problem, maybe you're more of a miner. With that, he raised his arm and I saw he was holding a beaten pickaxe. With surprising grace, he twirled the handle around in his palm and then held it toward me. Take it, lad. Get some more from there and there and then we'll mix it. I took the pickaxe from him and almost immediately dropped it, his delicate grip hiding how immensely heavy it actually was. With the pick in hand, I walked over to the rocky outcrops he'd pointed out. They were both close by, one a dull orange and the other a silver that had lost its shine. I wasn't an expert by any means, but I remember from school, the first was copper and the second most likely tin. I raised the pickaxe above my head and brought it down onto the orange rock with a crash. 
the metal struck stone and a deafening clang rang out through the caverns, reverberating around again and again. I dropped the pick and clamped my hands over my ears, shutting my eyes hard. The sound was immediate and intense, painfully loud. But then, just as quickly as it was made, it vanished. Eventually, when my ears had stopped ringing, I slowly opened my eyes and saw my pickaxe lying on the floor, the tip bent, and the orange rock absolutely no different. I heard a soft chuckle behind me. It's not about strength, lad. The miner scooped up my damaged pickaxe from the floor, then placed the tip on the orange rock, as if aiming his strike. With one graceful motion, he lifted the pick and brought it down, smoothly but firmly, and drove the metal spike deep into the copper. The rock split like soft wood. It looked effortless. Removing the pick, he reached forward and pulled out a chunk of dull copper. It's about skill. He threw the orange chunk at my feet, then held the pickaxe toward me again. Try the other rock. The cave was silent once more. I took the handle from him and stepped up to the dull silver-looking rock. Placing the tip of the pick on the rock just as I'd seen him do, I grasped the handle with both hands, shuffled my feet to balance myself, and drew in a long breath, then let out a long exhale. I raised the pick, not all the way, just high enough to matter, and brought it down on the rock. Another clang, not as harsh or loud as the first, but nowhere near as smooth as the instructor's swing. The pick had missed its mark, and I'd driven the spike a few inches off the target, but still managed to dislodge some tin. Not what I'd meant to do, but the result was the same. Another chuckle from behind me. It takes time. I picked up the small chunk of tin I'd managed to mine and the much larger chunk of copper I'd had thrown at me, and I looked toward the instructor. What now? I asked. He offered no reply, but simply walked toward the end of the cave, and I followed closely behind. We walked past more rocky outcrops. A few had pickaxes stuck in them at awkward angles. Some were smashed and chipped, and others seemed to overflow with minerals. And as we walked further and further into the cave, the air grew hotter and hotter. We followed the heat, and slowly a low rumble filled the cave, bouncing off the rocks and floor, a deep, primal growl. I stopped and watched as the instructor walked toward an imposing black iron box, twice as tall as him and ten times as wide. Now we smith. His arm shot up from his side, his leather-gloved hand wrapped round a blackened door handle, and he ripped open the mouth of a giant furnace. A wave of heat unlike anything I'd ever felt rushed into the cave. As it washed over me, I felt a flood of sweat pour down my back, soaking into my backpack. I gasped for air as the extreme heat singed my tongue. The metal lumps I was carrying became so hot, I couldn't hold them for fear of burning myself to the bone. It took what focus I had to not fall to my knees and cover my face from the heat. I couldn't even look at the furnace. Every time I tried, my eyes instantly dried out and my face felt like it was being pressed against a hot frying pan. How the instructor stood right next to the beast of heat and was seemingly unaffected, I had no idea. He could clearly tell I wasn't able to walk a step closer, so calmly paced over to me picked up both chunks of metal and returned to the furnace, casually tossing them inside. 
copper and tin, when combined, form the alloy. I coughed and tried to catch my breath as I shouted bronze into the constant torrent of heat. Correct. He closed the door of the furnace and the cave fell cool again. Those doors must be 12 inches thick to contain that amount of heat, and he'd opened them and shut them like they were nothing. Before he left the furnace, he picked up a small bar of bronze, smelted together earlier, and made his way back toward me. I caught my breath, stood up straight, and tried to lift my pack off my back to let the sweat drip out, but it was soaking wet and stuck to my skin. I'll have to deal with the clothing situation later. As the instructor walked back past me, he thrust the bronze bar into my hand, and as I took it, he placed a well-used hammer on top. Now, make that into something more useful. Before I could ask how, he reached behind him and pulled a large metal anvil from behind a rocky outcrop, dragging it along the floor with alarming speed and bringing it to a stop just in front of me, the anvil kicking up dust and dirt as it scraped deep into the floor and the sound of metal on stone echoing around the cave. The instructor took a step back and looked at me, his eyes filled with expectation. I placed the bronze bar and hammer on the anvil and took my backpack off. I couldn't smith with my arms weighed down. I paced around the anvil trying to find the best side to work from. The cave was lit well enough to see but not enough to work in, the torches on the walls being spread further apart this close to the furnace. I thought about dragging the anvil closer to a light source, but as I dug my fingers into it to try and move it, I couldn't shift it an inch, and the instructor scoffed. It wasn't going to be my best work, but I could try. I took up the hammer, placed the bar of bronze on the anvil, and began hammering the metal, working it, turning it, working some more, chipping off the excess, flattening it against the solid, dull iron. It took time, but eventually I'd flattened the bar into a rudimentary dagger. It wasn't beautiful or sharp, but it was better than nothing. With no leather to bind the handle, I'd hammered some ridges into it, giving it an uncomfortable but functional grip. Grasping the bronze dagger firmly, I looked up to the instructor. He was gone. I hadn't heard him leave, and looking around I couldn't make him out anywhere. There were no footprints left in the dust, no noise from anywhere in the cave. I guess he was satisfied with my work. I slung my pack back on, tucked the dagger firmly into my belt, and started walking. The furnace was a dead end, so I had no choice but to head back to where I'd mined, and the slope I'd entered from was too steep to climb back up, so I followed the torches further round, deeper into the cave. Further down, the lighting improved. Many more torches lined the walls, and even some cracks in the ceiling high above me let a few sparse rays of sunlight filter down. As the tunnel continued, I saw my way ahead blocked by some spiked metal gates. Oddly, thankfully, they were unlocked and open, held shut only by the odd angle they were built at. I pushed against the gate and slipped through. The cave path sloped down, not as dangerous as before, but noticeable. And as I walked down deeper and deeper, I heard the unmistakable sound of claws scratching and teeth scraping against bone. I carried on down the path. The cave wall to the left gave way and was replaced by a great metal fence, rusted bars winding together, rivets and nails haphazardly holding it in place. Time hadn't been kind to it, and gaps had formed where the twisted strands of iron had warped out of shape. 
and even though I was keeping a safe distance, I could just about see inside. Rats. Huge, giant rats. As large as me, and far more vicious, tens of them. I could hear the incessant squeaking and scrambling, the occasional rabid scream or yelp as one bit another. I walked on, following the cage edge, the mess of scratching and clawing constant, until I rounded the cage corner. I could see the cage door now, made from the same twisted mess of metal as the rest, but with jagged spikes facing inwards. I assumed to keep the rats from charging into it and impaling themselves. I kept creeping forward, hoping to bypass this disgusting cage entirely, when suddenly I stopped and noticed the gate was slowly creaking open. A rat leapt out, bounding toward me, claws scratching the earth and teeth bared, a vermin hiss and screech as it launched itself into the air, mouth open and razor-sharp teeth aimed at my neck. I panicked and reached for the dagger at my side, but it had twisted and caught in my belt. I tugged, but it was stuck fast, and as a last resort, I raised my arms up, covered my face, and turned my back to the vile creature. A step, a slice, and a scream. The rat's head flew past my right side, and its body and tail my left, as I felt a warm, solid wall of blood splatter across my back and the back of my hair. I risked a glance over my shoulder. A man, no taller than me, stood defiantly, his legs clad in blood-drenched steel, a huge two-handed sword held in just his right hand, and a red square shield strapped to his left arm, a silver dragon design just visible through a sheen of rat blood. His torso was bare, and his skin covered in complex, red tattoos, skulls, shapes and symbols. These continued up his neck and over his face. His eyes flicked and met mine. It looks like we have a rat problem. Another giant creature escaped the cage and ran toward me. The man raised his foot and brought it down hard on the rat's skull, cracking it open and spilling a warm mess of brain and blood into the dry floor. As he lifted his leg up, tufts of fur were stuck to the underside of his metal boots. I untangled the dagger from my belt and held it firmly in my hand as I walked up to his side. You won't do much with that, lad. He was right. I don't know what I'd hoped to do. Get yourself something else. He pointed his heavy blade toward a small table set back in the cave wall, away from the cage. It was covered with simple weapons, axes, maces, and swords. I hurried over and scanned through, before finally picking up a well-forged, medium-length bronze sword, and then strapped a small, wooden circular shield to my arm. Not much, but something. Watch your back, lad! I heard the shout and spun round, held my shield up in front of me, and braced. But before I had time to plan, I felt a weight of a rat smash against the shield, its claws wrapping around the edge. It was holding on, and reaching its head over and lashing its teeth toward me. I couldn't drop the shield, I'd be defenceless but the shield had a rat clinging to it, clawing and biting toward my throat. It wasn't as graceful as the warrior's slice, but I quickly brought up the blade and pointed the tip toward the screaming rat's face. Then, with the determined stab, I drove the blade toward it. The rat screamed as the bronze blade pierced its eye, slicing it open, and then buried itself through the rat's skull and deep down into its stomach. The stab only stopped when my hand crunched against the shattered eye socket. I pulled my arm back, and the blade slid back out of the rat's stomach, skull, and finally eye, dripping with blood and stomach acid. The lifeless corpse slid off the wooden shield and crumpled onto the floor. 
I was panting. It happened so fast, and yet I was out of breath. I looked over to the tattooed warrior. I saw he had taken a step inside the cage and was wildly swinging his blade, cleaving two or three rats at a time. He lifted his great shield and brought it down as a guillotine against another rat, slicing its head clean off as the shield drove into the ground. As I watched, I saw one larger rat had scrambled up the pile of its fallen kin and managed to scurry along the upper edge of the cage and was about to leap through the air and attack the tattoo warrior by surprise. It was too far to throw my sword and a scream wouldn't be much use over the deafening battle din, but I had to help. Running back to the weapons table, I looked around for something, anything to help and propped against the table leg. I saw a wooden shortbow and some arrows lying on the floor next to it. I packed the sword and shield away in my backpack, grabbed the bow and notched an arrow. Focusing on the large rat, I raised the bow and drew the string to my cheek, tracked the movement, and as the rat leapt off the cage edge toward the tattooed warrior, I loosed the arrow. It flew through the air and bit deeply into the rat's back legs, knocking it out the air and away from the man. I could see it wasn't dead, but limping badly. But before it could rejoin the fight, another rat jumped on it and began gnawing away at the arrow wound. More quickly joined and within seconds, the cannibal mass was ripping and eating away at their own kind. The man risked a glance and a curt nod before returning his focus to the pit of gore and blood before him. He hadn't slowed down a bit and was still slicing and stamping with as much ferocity as before. I decided to keep the bow and a few arrows and ran further into the cave. The rat noises slowly fading behind me before finally I saw a ladder ahead of me and the evening remains of sunlight trickling down, the smell of fur dissipating into the welcoming breeze of sea air. Climbing the ladder, I emerged into the late evening breeze, a welcome sight. I collapsed onto the ground near me and took a moment to gather my bearings. To my right, a tall green hill. I could see nothing on the top. And to the left, two grey buildings. The closest to me I could see through the window was a bank. Grey-suited tellers walking around as notes were being written, stamped and filed. Bureaucracy was never my strong point, finances even less. I gathered my things and walked toward both buildings. The other, I assumed from the elaborate stained glass window, was probably a place of worship. The doors of the bank were wide open and inviting, so I stepped inside. A young teller, clearly eager and keen to make his first loan or sale, rushed toward me, and before he opened his mouth, took note of my blood-stained backpack, fur-clumped boots, and the smell of sweat wafting from my clothes. He smiled an insincere smile and quickly turned about face and busied himself with something, anything, other than talking to me. There were other people in the bank. They'd stopped to stare at me, and as they did, a small wooden door opened, and they all seemed to silently, urgently, wish I'd leave by it. I had no problem obliging. These were not my type of people. The back door of the bank took me out into the gentle evening. The sea had calmed now, and the waves found a more gentle pace. The dirt path leading me slowly to the right as the second grey building came into view. Ornate stained glass windows and a four-pointed star on the steeple roof told me this was definitely a church. I'm not a religious man, but as I stepped inside the church, several monks glanced up, acknowledged me, and then continued with whatever they were doing. Some reading, some writing, a few sat in the pews praying silently. The marble floor was spotlessly clean, scrubbed so much it reflected the painted ceiling, and I became aware I'd stepped dust and mud inside, leaving comically obvious footprints of my path. One monk approached me and smiled. 
Don't worry about the floor. We'll clean it up. I'm, I'm sorry, I, I didn't realise. He raised a hand to cut me off. It's no problem, really. You may pray at the altar before continuing your journey. His offer was kind and sincere, but I had to be honest. Actually, brother, I'm not one for believing in the gods. He smiled. That doesn't mean you can't pray. With that, he left to fetch a bucket and mop and set about cleaning my trail of muddy footprints. I turned to offer help and he again raised a hand to stop me. Another simple smile and he set about finishing the job. I faced the altar he'd spoken of, a beautiful marble slab held up by decorative white carved legs, draped with a soft sheet, candles on each of the four corners, and in the centre, a golden four-pointed star, the symbol of Saradomin. I'm not one for worshipping things, but I spoke a wordless prayer to whatever could hear me and left the church through the side door. The dirt path continued toward the largest building so far, right against the cliff's edge and almost dropping off into the sea. By now, the sun had almost disappeared and the shadows cast were long and slender. I walked toward the large building and, just outside, a man was lying on the grass, not quite asleep, but peacefully drifting off. He didn't seem like a threat, so I calmly walked past him and went to open the double doors to the final building. As I drew level with the sleeping man, he raised his head and looked at me through tired eyes. He spoke softly. By the way, I waited for a response, but his tiredness took over and his head fell back into the comfortable grass. I turned back to the last building and stepped inside. Directly ahead of me was a wall lined with crooked wooden shelves, stacked with all manner of mystical and occult relics. A human skull, vials and jars filled with odd potions and liquids, scrolls bound with twine. Above the shelf to either side were mounted and stuffed black dragon heads, mouths propped open to show the deadly row of dagger-sized teeth. To my right was a closed door, and to my left, a strange sight. The room was deep-set, with a metal fence several metres from the back wall. The fence had no gate, and was home to several chickens. They ran around and pecked at the ground. Some were sitting calmly on bales of hay stacked against the back wall. On my side of the metal fence stood an old man dressed head to toe in blue. A blue robe trailed from his shoulders to the floor, and gathered stray bits of hay as he paced around. A blue pointed hat propped on top of his wiry grey hair. He carried a long staff with a dull white orb on the top of it. When he saw me standing in the doorway, he hurried over to me. Ah, good, I've been waiting, here you are. He dropped his staff and it remained floating in the air. Then he took a small pile of stones from a pocket hidden in the folds of his robes and spilled them into my hand. With that, he grabbed his staff again and hurried out the building. I thought about asking a question, but before I could decide if I wanted to, he held out several small stones in his own hand crushed them together and vanished. Ah, they were rune stones. I'd heard of them, but never actually had a chance to use any. Magical stones that held a fraction of a fraction of the world's power, each stone infused with a different element or emotion. Not knowing quite where to start, I walked back toward the shelf, took a book marked Magic for Beginners, sat on it, and sat on one of the few bales of hay this side of the fence and started reading. It detailed a simple spell, Wind Strike. It said I'd need one air rune and one mind rune, then had drawings of the symbols that I'd need to look for. I spread out the runes I'd been given on the floor in front of me 
and managed to pick out the two the book said. Holding them in my hands, I read the book out loud to myself. While holding the correct runes and with the correct understanding of magical energy, confidently proclaim Windstrike. The moment I said Windstrike, the runes in my hand dissolved, my fingers wrenched themselves apart, then closed into a tight fist, and a solid ball of concentrated magical energy shot out, flying through the metal bars of the cage, picking up a chicken in its path and smashing the poor birds hard into the back wall. I sat, stunned and upset, as the dead ball of feathers and blood slid off the wall and landed on the floor next to what, only seconds ago, were its friends. I made a mental note that from now on all magic spells needed to be aimed before being cast. Returning to the book, I read on, its pages detailing fascinating spells and complex magical incantations. I propped my pack against the wall and sat back on it comfortably, crossing my legs and shuffling until I was as comfortable as I could be. The sun had firmly set, the chickens in the cage were squawking, and the lit lamps on the wall illuminating the final few pages as I read. I flipped through until I found a curious spell, one which seemed to require no runes, and as curiosity overtook me, I couldn't help but read out loud. Once free of combat, and having not cast this within the last 30 minutes, sit comfortably, clear your mind, and focus on your home of Lumbridge. Thank you for listening. If you have any comments or feedback, then please let me know. You can comment here, join me live on Twitch, or follow me on Twitter, all under the handle Josh Strife Hayes. I hope you've enjoyed this pilot episode and look forward to many more adventures in the world of old school RuneScape. Thank you for your time and have a great day.